Are you ready for children's church? You guys look way more awake than your parents. Okay. So let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, thank you for this morning that we can come here and learn about you and learn from your word, which is the Bible. We pray for our children's church that it would be a, a great time being with our friends and learning from our teachers. We thank you that uh, you love us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. It's time to wake up. You want to get out your sermon outline that says the private nature of the kingdom. Have that to follow along. We're in Matthew chapter 6 uh, today. And I'll be reading the first six verses and then verses 16 through 18. We're going to skip a part which we're going to do next week. So, but these all sort of go together, and uh, so please listen carefully as this is God's Word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. And in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then jumping to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. And you have brought us again this morning to learn about your Son, Jesus. We ask you to give us the grace to understand more hard teaching here. We're all familiar with giving, praying, and fasting. We just don't like to do them. The words of our prayers need to be given to you. And the amount of our gifts need to be honoring to you. And fasting makes us hungry, but not for you. We need our hearts changed, so we give, pray, and fast in ways that glorify you and bring honor to the cause of Christ. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us, help us to see Jesus and obey Jesus. And as always for this, we do need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. According to an old Jewish tale titled, If Not Higher, there was once a beloved rabbi who disappeared every Friday, just prior to the Sabbath. 
and unable to find him anywhere, the devoted villagers boasted that uh, he must ascend to heaven every Friday so he could talk with God and get ready for the Sabbath. But one day a newcomer to their small village heard the stories and he scoffed at them and said, people don't ascend to heaven. He sort of mocked them. He said, I'll tell you where your rabbi really goes on Friday mornings. So the next Friday morning, the newcomer crept into the woods by the rabbi's house. And he quietly watched the rabbi rise and say his prayers. And much to the onlooker's surprise, he dressed in the clothes of a common peasant. The rabbi walked into the woods and chopped down a small tree and cut it into firewood. And then the rabbi carried the bundle of wood to a shack in the poorest section of the village. An old woman and her sick son gladly received the wood for the coming week. And they thanked this anonymous woodsman, unaware that it was their own rabbi in disguise. And the skeptical newcomer, deeply moved by the rabbi's secret goodness, became the rabbi's disciple. And so now, whenever the villager said, on Friday morning, our rabbi ascends to heaven, he would quietly add, if not higher. And the simple Hebrew story illustrates a key aspect of how Matthew views Jesus' approach to true spiritual life. We might call it secret righteousness or stealth spirituality. And throughout this gospel, Matthew ushers us into quiet, unnoticed, unspectacular, small ways to follow and obey Jesus. About a month ago, I told you the New Testament tells us what Jesus taught his followers as he tried to change their way of thinking in order to get them to think from God's perspective instead of from their own more limited human perspective. And we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in this series on the Gospel of Matthew, which I've entitled The King and His Kingdom. And so today we're still in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we're right in the middle. The Sermon on the Mount is important because it tells us how things work in God's kingdom. It's sort of an instruction manual for those who want to follow Jesus and pattern their life after his and after his teaching and after his thinking. And up to now, Jesus has been addressing the matter of personal righteousness in terms of doing God's will in the realm of morality of right and wrong. But now, he sort of shifts and he's considering how do we do God's will in terms of religious practice, or as we might uh, call it today, spiritual disciplines. And what I find most interesting about all of this is that practicing the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life is assumed by Christ. As we go through this text, we see he doesn't command giving or praying or fasting, but he clearly states when you give, when you pray, when you fast, just assuming these are things that you do. These have been common Christian practices for centuries. And before that, they were preceded the same uh, common uh, spiritual practices in Judaism. So, How are we to practice these spiritual disciplines today? And I'm not going to go verse by verse today like I normally do, since there's so much repetition in these verses 
we're going to try and look at the big picture. There's several points that Jesus is making about personal righteousness here. And I think they're very important for living the Christian life. And the first point considers the principles of righteousness. The principles of righteousness. And it forces us to ask, what about Christians who have poor motives or wrong motives? How do believers show hypocrisy while at the same time doing righteous deeds? Jesus has set forth the character and practice of kingdom citizens in the first portion of the Sermon on the Mount, which was chapter 5. And after commanding perfection, he immediately warns of the subtleties of hypocrisy that can creep into our spiritual pursuits. And the problem doesn't rest in the actual pursuits or in the specific disciplines. The problem rests in our hearts, in the individual heart. And the first verse sets forth the basic principle that the Lord is driving home, and then he'll go on to illustrate it uh, in three ways. Look with me at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Three times in these verses, we have some reference to being seen by others. Some versions have to be noticed by them or to be admired by them. In the words beware or give heed to or watch out for points to the motives behind the Christian's devotion and duty. When all is said and done, why have we done what we have done in the name of Christ and for the sake of righteousness? When we give an offering or preach a sermon or offer our public or even private prayers or help the poor or discipline our bodies, what's been the motive behind it? And again, in each of these illustrations dealing with different aspects of religious life, Jesus is concerned that his disciples simply don't go through the motions, but that they're concerned enough to ask why they're doing these things. Jesus is very interested that his disciples not only do what's right, but he's interested that they do what's right for the right reasons. He's concerned about motives. And he's concerned about motives because our love, our devotion, our practice of spiritual disciplines can become tainted by self-centeredness because of sin's deceitfulness. The Christian, any Christian, you, me, have to be aware of our own personal motives for doing righteous things, for performing righteous acts. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons can slip into any of our lives. Even the most devoted Christian. And so our Lord is calling attention to the need for holy motives and righteous pursuits. So how can having the right motives or the wrong motives affect us while we're seeking to do good? I suppose you could ask, you know, why is the issue of motive even being brought up? I mean, doesn't a poor person appreciate receiving donations even if the motive isn't right? I mean, does that person, you know, mind that the giver is calling attention to himself through his gift? I mean, he just wants the gift. 
And a congregation might appreciate the content of a sermon even though it's offered with improper motives. And we could have special music that might edify and lift the spirits, but the motive for it could be skewed. See, the Lord's calling for more than just the raw act of benevolence towards someone else or a good deed in the name of Christ. The practices, the deeds, the act of uh, righteousness, they may benefit another person, but it's not to be done before other people in order to be seen by them. We may outwardly do well towards others and even be a help uh, to them, but the thing that is driving us could be wicked and sinful. And kingdom citizenship calls for higher standards. Sinful motives can slip into our lives, and we may not even realize it. Think of the story of the Apostle Peter. He'd been enjoying fellowship with the Gentile believers at Antioch, and a group of strong-minded Jews that professed to be Christians came to Antioch, and they were called Judaizers, and they confronted Peter, and so he withdrew uh, out of the fellowship with the Gentiles and held himself apart from them. And the Apostle Paul confronted him, and he said Peter's actions, he called it hypocrisy. And the problem isn't just that when the Jews came into town, it's deeper. As Peter's motives for being with the Gentile Christians lacked the integrity to keep him committed to them. He was doing the right thing in being with them, but he did so out of convenience. And maybe even the desire for attention rather than the right motive to honor the Lord in his relationship with the Gentile believers. But the coming of the Judaizers exposes Peter's hypocrisy. He wants to be noticed by the Gentiles uh, when convenient, and then by the Judaizers. He's trying to please all sides. And he winds up showing hypocrisy in his motivation. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 2, he was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So this is a really big deal, this issue of hypocrisy. And so Jesus goes on and tells us, so when we're giving, we're not to, verse 3, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so you're giving may be in secret. And when we're praying, we're to, verse 6, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And when we're fasting, verse 17, we're to anoint your head and wash your face so you don't give the appearance of fasting. In other words, when we're exercising acts of Christian devotion and duty, spiritual discipline, we're not to call attention to ourselves or be impressed with ourselves or somehow think we're adding merit uh, by our deeds. And the greatest hindrance to having the right motives is the desire to please yourself rather than the Lord. Selfishness can actually lead to doing great uh, acts, great deeds, great exploits in the name of Jesus when we're really doing them for ourselves. It can show up by going to the mission field and receiving the accolades of men for such a great sacrifice. The real reason is just to make a name for yourself. Great examples, John Wesley, great theologian, founder of the Methodist Church. He traveled to the primitive 
colonial state of Georgia in the 18th century. I'm delighted you're awake. So, the, uh, went to Georgia to be a missionary and I was not even converted. And there's a long story there. He got in trouble and they had to send him home. But he went because he thought his actions would improve his standing with God, which is a totally self-centered motive. And it wasn't until they sent him home that he got converted. But he writes in his uh, memoirs that, you know, he, he went to do this good thing. And it was a miserable experience because he had twisted motives. And that's so easy for any of us. Wesley's just a very prominent example. But good things can be twisted by bad motives. So as we move from principles to practices, that's the next blank there, it's good for us to be reminded what God's Word says. And Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You can't hide your motives from God. You can't hide your motives from God. So let's move from principles to practices of righteousness. So after stating the principle of considering the Lord by guarding our motives and our acts of devotion and duty, the Lord gives us three examples to bring this truth home into the realm of everyday Christian life. And the first one's giving. You see that in verses 2 through 4. Now, giving is an important part of ancient Judaism. Even those who were gleaning uh, in the wheat fields were told to leave some of the sheaves behind so the poor could come and gather them up and have food. And that same practice of giving uh, passed into Christianity. But with every act of giving, there's still a danger of mixed motives creeping in. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, scholars debate whether Christ uses this metaphorically or whether some actually had uh, trumpeters announcing their gifts. Some say there was a time where they blew the trumpet in the temple. They called people to come and to give. It's not really clear, but in any case, it implies that the gift comes with this craving desire for public recognition. It's no different today. Today we'd have a press conference, or we'd have a special church announcement, or we'd name a building for someone, or a charitable foundation would parade the benefactor. In some church settings, I have seen this, the offering is taken by all of the members parading to the front and laying their gifts on the table for everyone to see. There tend to be a lot of cash gifts because they're more noticeable. You can't tell what's on somebody's check. But you can tell if they drop a bundle on the table. In other settings, people who give uh, gifts expect to have certain privileges and maybe even control. And the truth is, they're not giving. They're buying. And they get what they pay for. And our Lord's instructions are really simple. 
no boasting, no bragging, no announcement of the size of your gift, no recognition. Giving is done quietly as unto the Lord. We'll find our satisfaction in the joy of giving, not in the approval of men. And he uses this sort of extreme illustration to emphasize this privacy that should be present when we give to help others. In verse 3, he says, Well, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, the right hand is the one we normally use in giving because most of us are right-handed. And thus, when we give, our giving must be so hidden that somehow the left hand doesn't see what's happening. And the idea is not only are we not tell others of our giving, we're not to make a big deal of it ourselves. And we are so subtly sinful that we'll refrain from an outward show of giving and then pat ourselves on the back for our profound humility. And Jesus is saying we simply have to guard against this. Don't keep a mental diary where you jot down your good deeds assuming that it's spiritual because it's private. Don't keep track. Don't give yourself high scores. Forget your goodness. Follow God. Do it. Give whatever you're going to give. Forget it. Don't worry about what everybody else sees or what everybody else thinks. Second example that Jesus gives us is one we're all supposed to be familiar with. Jed just talked to us about it, and that's praying. Prayer is an interesting subject, one that we'll consider more next week. We dig into the model prayer that uh, our Lord gave us. But for now, the focus is on the motive for praying. Do we pray in hopes that others will think more highly of us? Do we pray to somehow impress even ourselves that we're so spiritual? God is so lucky to have me on his team. We don't consciously think that way, I hope, but often we act that way. Do we pray somehow to gain favor with God? And Jesus deals with all of this, starting in verse 5. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And you can picture the scene. Synagogue doesn't look dramatically different than your average uh, church congregation. The rabbi calls upon brother so-and-so to come pray. And he gives the most polished, flowery prayer that the congregation's ever heard. And once he sits down, the members of the congregation are awed by his knowledge of Scripture and by his theological language and his obvious spirituality. And he sits there with a smug grin knowing that he just impressed the whole congregation with what he said. And Jesus declared he got what he wanted, the approval of others. But he's not getting what he prayed for. In the least, his desire for the approval of others exposes the sinful motives that dictate his prayer. And instead of such public displays, Jesus commands we develop a habit of secret, private prayer. It's not that he discourages public praying. Later in the book of Acts, we find the church gathered for prayer. But he's calling for public praying that is an overflow of our private praying. 
verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And part of the idea is you shouldn't ever get up here to pray if you're not praying throughout the week, if you're not praying privately. That what happens up here should be an overflow of what's going on the rest of the week. I think you could apply this to preaching, to praying, to music, to whatever it is that we do. If it isn't happening during the week, for me or anyone, we got no business being up here. And we understand. The Lord doesn't want kingdom citizens to use prayer as a platform for self-promotion. But we also need to see that he does want us to pray. Secret prayer, a time when you're alone with God, is one of the best barometers of your devotion to Christ. When you're praying in secret, whether it's in a room or out on a walk or even driving in your car, don't close your eyes. But no one's there to be impressed by your clever words. As if we could actually impress God anyways. How arrogant is that to think that, you know, I'm going to have such great words that God's really going to be impressed. You know, and I think God's saying, again. Um, You know, it's important to understand that God alone hears us and God alone sees us. And that's the promise of Christ in this text. As you pray in secret, the Father who sees in secret notices and rewards accordingly. And just the pleasure of knowing that our Heavenly Father hears us, which is pretty remarkable, that that should be enough. That it's actually amazing that God actually listens to us. I don't even listen to us most of the time. But the Bible says that God hears us and that God sees us. And finally, Jesus gets to the really hard one, fasting. Fasting's been practiced by many different religions for centuries. It's a personal self-discipline in which a person denies himself a normal need in order to learn to restrain his passions and desires and express his devotion. Often God's people have fasted in order to express humility before the Lord, to show an earnest desire for the Lord to work in some particular way. There's been several times in our church's history where we've called for a fast because we had to make some big decision or some important step, um, you know, uh, some advancement for the church. And we really wanted everybody to be devoted to praying about that. But most commonly, fasting involves denying oneself meals in order to give oneself to the purpose of seeking God. But Jesus' fasting is never to be used for drawing attention to your spirituality or devotion. See, his words here are really not about giving, praying, and fasting. They're about doing spiritual things to get people to approve of you. And so he says, verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So the gloomy, sullen looks on their faces give uh, pretentious fasters a ready audience. The language suggests this sort of unrecognizable look. You know, they'll leave their hair disheveled and neglect bathing and accentuate some strange paleness uh, to their face. 
And in our day, it seems the most common thing is for people to announce that they're fasting and to tell everyone else about their fasting. I received a booklet from another pastor several years ago telling about his 40-day fast and how that became the key not only to his own spiritual growth but to his church's growth. And then he outlined in true church program fashion how to institute such a fast in your own life and that's the key to having a big growing church like his. And what would Jesus say? Well, he tells us, verse 17, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, go ahead and bathe, shave, brush your hair, put on deodorant, take care of all the normal necessities of life so there's no outward appearance of fasting. Let this be between you and the Lord. The Lord sees in secret and rewards accordingly. And so we hear all these things about giving and praying and fasting, and you wonder if it were only all that easy. Obviously, it's not easy, or Jesus wouldn't have to bring our attention to it. In fact, he wants us to know that our personal practices of righteousness are filled with problems. Problems, that's the next blank there, the problems of righteousness. More than giving instructions on giving, praying, and fasting, this text is a warning to guard our spiritual disciplines, our personal devotion, our Christian duty from our own self-centered ways. And the text points out more implicitly than explicitly, there's two major problems that crop up when talking about our own personal righteousness. And the first is that pride inflates. Pride inflates. The reason we guard ourselves is due to the deceitfulness of sin. Conversion doesn't eliminate the presence of sin this side of heaven. We have a new nature, new desires, but we still battle with the patterns and the tendencies of the flesh. That's why Romans 12 tells us we need to be constantly renewed in our minds. If the Apostle Peter needed a rebuke by the Apostle Paul for his man-pleasing spirit in Antioch, And if the Apostle Paul needed a thorn in the flesh to keep him from having this self-exalted, exaggerated view of his own spirituality, then I think we can be pretty sure that we're going to have areas where we're going to constantly battle the flesh too. And again, that's why Christ warns us, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The law of pride is so strong in our lives. We enjoy the applause of men. We may even crave it. I don't know how many of you follow whether movies or wrestling, but there's a wrestler named The Rock who started to do well in movies and like make a lot of money, but he went back to wrestling. And he doesn't make near as much money in wrestling as he made in the movies. So they asked him, why did you do this? He said, there's nothing like walking into an arena of 30,000 people cheering your name. And he said, you don't get that in the movies. There's nobody there. There's no audience when you're acting. And he said, I had to get back to having all that applause. I thought, how telling. You know, that, again, easy example, big stage. But we like applause. We like people to like us. It feels good. 
but it's deceptive and it's deceitful. And in time, it will inflict us with incredible wounds if we fail to guard ourselves against flattery and self-promotion and pride. And if pride's the inner problem we face, then the outer problem we face is that hypocrisy distorts. The language our Lord uses here is pretty strong. He repeats himself in verses 2, 5, and 16, you must not be like the hypocrites so that kingdom citizens don't fall prey to the selfish tendencies of the human heart. Now the term, term hypocrite comes to us from the theater. It's commonly used in ancient plays. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson explains in ancient drama, an important part of the play is fulfilled by the chorus as in opera and musicals it provided commentary on the action of the play. And the hypocrite is a designated actor who is the one who answers the chorus. And that's exactly what the Pharisees had begun to do. Their religious activities were no longer answering to God. Their eyes were fixed on the chorus of men's opinions of them. In addition, in the theater, rather than wearing makeup or having costume changes or changing characters, the actors simply wore masks to express the character that they played. That's the hypocrite, the one who answers to the chorus of men and wears a mask to cover the reality of his own heart. He pretends to be one thing when in reality is something completely different. And the hypocrite has a distorted view of God. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, he is insecure before God and therefore seeks security and what his fellow men think about him. The hypocrite has an exaggerated view of human applause, thinking it to be worth more than the favor of the Father. And so the hypocrite turns acts of godliness and self-discipline into parade ground routines where everybody can see. And sadly, Jesus declares three times, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, to be honest, hypocrisy shows up in every realm of life. We find it among politicians, businessmen, and even common blue-collar uh, laborers. shows up in the home life with husbands and wives and children. It rears its ugly head even among Christians and in the church. The hypocrite has a duplicitous life, often without even realizing it, given the appearance of having one motive, when in reality there's another hidden motive which is driving him. Politician might claim to be a public servant. In fact, his motives prove him to be a public serpent. Not all of them. But the examples are too long to use. You know, I mean, Wikipedia has a whole uh, page of political scandals that runs page after page after page after page. Businessmen might make uh, promises for helping a client, but then renege once he makes his profit. He convinces himself it's okay, he's just trying to make a living. Family members may claim to have great love for one another and yet do everything with a selfish motive to achieve their own personal desires. However, the hardest type of hypocrisy to spot is not in someone else. It's hardest to spot in ourselves. We can pretty quickly spot hypocrisy in someone else, but just as quickly make excuses for the same hypocrisy in our own lives. We have to ask, what's my motive 
when I give, when I pray, when I discipline myself. I may not be trying to rip someone off, but maybe I'm just trying to rob praise from others, for myself. And again, the problem isn't always your actions and it's not always your words. The problem is your heart. And that's because your heart is a broken bucket. Your heart is a broken bucket. What Jesus calls for is that we examine our motives so that whatever we do might cause us to think about God the Father. That we have to practice our religious deeds, our spiritual disciplines without a view of getting the approval of others. He says in verse 1, For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The Lord will not share his glory with anyone else. If it's the approval of others that we long for, he tells us again three times, then you've received your reward. You wanted the approval of others, you got it, you're done. But you receive nothing from the Lord. Paul captures the heart of this message when he wrote in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So is the divine stamp of approval upon the very motives of what we say and do? Is our aim and devotion to duty one of thankfulness to God the Father? While giving may relieve human suffering, there's a bigger aim that we're supposed to have in mind. You know, the Christian may desire to help others, but more than anything, he's to offer his gift with a sense of gratitude for the great mercy that the Lord has shown to him or to her. That she keeps the Lord in mind when she makes her gift. It's with a view towards pleasing God that he gives. It's because she has thought, thought so much upon the character and the practice of Christ that she desires to do as Christ did. In giving, and that's pleasing to God. It's the same thought of personal holiness the writer of Hebrews addresses in Hebrews 12. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He speaks of how the Christian is to lay aside the weights and sins that hinder our faithful walk with him. And one of the terrifying weights is having our own sinful motives creep in to our devotion to Christ. That we give and pray and love and discipline and fast and whatever else for our own purposes. So he tells us to lay those things aside. And then he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Check your motives. Examine them in light of the selflessness, the gentleness, the meekness called for in the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, uh, the earth. And then he says, look to Jesus, consider him in the way he pursued every step with the conscious motive of pleasing the Father. In this passage, Jesus is addressing a fundamental human need, the desire to be noticed and affirmed and blessed. And in clear contrast to some worldviews that downplay or disregard human desire, Jesus acknowledges the reality and even the goodness of this basic human desire. You know, for instance, when my children were younger, I couldn't go outside without constantly hearing, Dad, watch this. Watch me run. Watch me do cartwheels. 
Watch me pitch. Watch me swim. Watch me dunk my brother and try to drown him. Dad, watch me. Watching your children and praising them is sort of a compulsory parental duty. But it's also a delight. We just do it instinctively and attentively. And I'm no different from my children because I crave affirmation and appreciation and approval and applause just as much, if not more, than they do. But here in Matthew 6, Jesus is telling us the need for affirmation and appreciation and applause and approval is too big for a human solution. Your heart is like a leaky bucket. No matter how much you and others pour praise into the bucket, it never gets filled. It remains this empty, craving, gaping wound. And first you have to have your broken, leaky, needy heart healed. And Jesus says there's only one thing that can fill the cracks. My Father's love. And that's the message here. Jesus wants us to be clear on this. There's only two options for the Christian life. One, trust the Father's love and receive His reward. Or find your own reward right now in the approval of others. He seems to be saying, sure, you can get the praise of people. They'll love and admire you. You'll impress them with your fine, upstanding, righteous deeds. But be careful, because that's all you'll get. You know, sometimes I find myself thinking of all the people who need to get their act together. Surely none of you, other people. You know, all the people who are self-righteous and all the people who need a big dose of uh, humility. And we may be right about them, and that may all be true, but applying this to others first is not taking grace seriously. I need to keep a close watch on my life. I need to show honor. I need to practice confession and repentance. I need to humble myself. And as I think I'm growing spiritually, I need to hold the fruit of the Spirit up to my broken, leaky heart and be honest about asking, how am I doing in these areas? Because in the end, the path of hypocrisy and human praise never satisfies our hearts. It can't heal the cracks at the bottom of our bucket. It leaves us disappointed. And so we just demand more. Notice me. Meet my needs. Give me the recognition. And it's exhausting. Our lives become a frantic race to please the people crowning our lives. We can't stop and rest because we're so busy pleasing others. We can't hear Christ's invitation to come and rest, to be healed, to fix the broken buckets of our hearts. And that's something you need right now. Your heart is a broken bucket, and only Jesus can fix it. So go to the Lord in prayer. And don't worry about what everyone else is thinking. The only thing that matters is what Jesus is thinking. So take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have sent your Son. 
Open our eyes that we can see our sinful motives and our desires for the approval of others. And then, Lord, open our eyes some more so we can see that our deepest needs for love and acceptance and forgiveness can only be met by a loving, accepting, and forgiving God whose approval is all that matters. Give us the faith to truly believe this. Give us the strength to live that way before the Lord. And thank you that Jesus makes it possible. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.